Hey, spooky friends, and welcome to The Twisted Twins, hosted by Britt and Kay. And on tonight's episode, I want to say this first and foremost, trigger warning. <laughs> um, our stories tonight are a lot. Um, so I would just like to say trigger warning for uh, murder, for uh, ch children victims, and just really gruesome, brutal stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Put a <laughs> pin in that! <laughs> Put a motherfucking pin in that! Jump right in and get started, because what an intro. It is going to be a lot, though. I mean, I think even you and I are a little, like, on edge just thinking about what we have to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I was, when we were um, brainstorming ideas to kind of talk about, or, you know, topics, things like that, I, you know, we both kind of came to the table with Kayla and I researching and bringing things to, to each other as just kind of like a brainstorming bowl, if you will. And um, our stories had very significant similarities. So, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, let's categorize them into an episode. So this particular episode um, is going to be probably one of many, because unfortunately, this is <sighs> a crazy world that we live in. But, um, well, it's a topic, like but it's, it's blooded. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I'm being so dramatic leading up to it. But our topic tonight <laughs> is vicious crimes. So it is called vicious crimes. And our particular episode tonight, the collection of four stories we are going to tell you, they are all true, unfortunately. Um, and they are all unsolved, which just mind blowing me um it's so it makes it so much harder because the friends and families that were left behind after these people were brutally murdered they didn't get any any kind of justice answers yeah Not or justice yeah yep like yeah what that would feel like and especially when you guys, yeah, like we're just like teasing you guys along. Um, when you guys hear the details of some of these stories, it's gonna shock ya. And just try to think of how you would feel if you if you found out your family went through the and then you don't know who did it. It's scary. It's I know. Scary. So this particular story, um, it is very I would say it's a very well known um true crime story and a haunting story as well. So it is a 111 year old mystery. So let's just jump right in. Okay. After a joyous day of day, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> after a joyous day, uh, I said it fucking like that again, of church and of celebration, um, June 10th, 1912, six members of the Moore family and two of the children's friends slept soundly in their beds in Villisca, Iowa. 
So I'm going to start with the two adults in the, in the home, sorry. Because there's eight people total inside. Um, two adults, four children. Wait, six children, sorry. <laughs> that math wasn't quite mapping. Okay, <laughs> so I'm gonna start with Josiah Moore and Sarah Moore, the mom and dad, husband and wife. So Josiah Moore, like I said, he was the head of the family. He was a very prominent businessman in Villisca. And his wife, Sarah, she actually was a local church coordinator. She particularly focused on like the children's, um, you know, Sunday school programs, things like that. Um, and she actually coordinated the children's um, program or celebration that day, so on June 10th. Now, Josiah and Sarah were the parents of Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur, 7, and Boyd, 5. And those are their ages. <laughs> Just to, in case you were like, why is she saying numbers? Their ages. Um, now, the two neighbor girls, they were really good friends of Mary Catherine's and, you know, the family, too, because it's a small town and they're all close you know um, so they all they happen to be neighbors so these girls they're sisters and Lena is 12 and Ina is 8 and so they're having like a sleepover with their beloved friends the more children so deep breath um, it's about to get pretty heavy you can skip through this story if you'd like um, so as the family and the children slept, a vile, silent intruder slipped inside the Moore's bedroom from the attic, um, with Josiah's own axe in hand. The stranger then picked up an oil lamp. And so let me try to explain this. Um, oil lamps back in the day had like the little metal base that was full of oil and a glass chimney on top and there was like a wick in the middle so once you lit it and you like turned a knob on the base it would make the um the flame brighter depending on like how much oil you released into the wick <sighs> sorry this this part freaks me out so the stranger picked up an oil lamp that was nearby, <laughs> removed near boy, <laughs> um, <laughs> removed the glass chimney from the oil lamp itself. Um, in a couple places, kind of, it's kind of confusing. The intruder either placed the glass chimney, they placed it somewhere to where investigators were like, "There's the fucking chimney right there." One place said it was underneath a chair close by. Another one said it was underneath their dresser. Somewhere in the room, they set the fucking glass chimney down, okay? Um, next, they shortened the wick in half and lit it, turning the dial down so low that the lamp gave off a nearly undetectable glow. So... <laughs> Just fucking 
eerie, you know. Um, so the intruder then crept into Josiah and Sarah's bedroom, like I said, with the oil lamp and axe in hand. Josiah was the first victim. Now, there's differing accounts on this. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> Two sources that I found claim Josiah was the only victim in the home to have been killed with the sharp side of the axe and vice versa with Sarah. Um, the other spouse bludgeoned with the blunt side. So if you think of an axe, they have the sharp side that you use for, you know, chopping wood. Or, did I say sharp or blunt? Oh, Use this. Okay. <laughs> and then the back is like a blunt, you know, solid piece of metal, you know, part of the blade. Um, so, now regardless, the bedroom ceilings in all three of the bedrooms, because this home had three really, you know, quaint bedrooms, the ceilings had gouges in them from the sharp side of the axe's blade. So whenever the murderer swung the axe up high, the blade got caught in the ceiling and left gouge marks. You know, obviously meaning he hit with the blunt side. Okay. Yeah, yuck, sorry. I'm so sorry. Hate it. Um, both Josiah and Sarah nearly died instantly. Um, now, to kind of get a better idea of this in particular, how investigators knew that the intruder was in the attic was that they found like spent cigarettes. Like the person snuck into the home, like hid in the attic until the, like the family came home from church, did their thing, went to bed and smoked fucking cigarettes in the attic. Okay. Um, and I was watching, like I said, this particular case is very popular. This home is still standing and it's a hot spot for paranormal activity. Did so they, I was watching. Did they fix the ceiling? Now it's really, um, I'm not sure if they're authentic or not, but like, at, like I said, this place is a paranormal hot spot for, you know, um, a lot of activity. So it, of course, has drawn in tons and tons and tons of investigators, tourists, things like that. Um, and it's now, to this day, like a fully restored museum. Um, but before, it was just like a standard family home. So I'm not sure if I would think that they are not authentic just because it, it, other people lived in the home afterwards, you know? Yeah. And that would be a disturbing sight to go to bed. Yeah. You know, staring at. Um, also, on the flip side, them react, reenacting to get the marks, which is more disturbing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about disturbing or in extremely disgustingly poor taste ghost adventures episode um of their investigation on this house let me it's like 
I can't remember what season it was. Oh gosh. If you Google it, you can find it and watch the disgrace that Zaddy Baggins is. has an axe literally propped up and is like laying underneath it and is tempting the spirits to oh. the axe on him. I have seen that one. Yes. It, yeah. Sir, check your attitude out the door. <laughs> that's that's foul right there, my my good sir. Um, but Ghost Adventures, Dead Files has been here, and I'll list at the end of this particular story all of the other people who've been there. The this home in particular, so it was built in the eighteen mid to late eighteen hundreds, and it was a very quaint farmhouse, like very very quaint. So. Um, Ghost Adventures had a really good visual aid as far as where um, Josiah and Sarah's bedroom, bed, sorry, bed was in proximity to the attic door. It literally was so close. Mm -hmm. Like I, within like two to three feet. So I wonder it was urged. Like, did they ever try to decide a motive I'll get there I'll yeah. get there so once Josiah and Sarah were dead um, this heinous monster snuck down the hallway to the Moore children's bedroom now all four of their precious beautiful children slept in the same bed bed and bedroom together in this disgraceful fucking horrible human um, killed all four of them while they were sleeping with the blunt end of the axe. Now, after Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Boyd were all murdered, um, he, he, she, whatever, this ass wipe of a fucking monster demon quietly made their way downstairs to the room the Stillinger sisters slept. So, like I said, um, Mary Catherine, the daughter, her really good friends, neighbor girls, sisters, Lena and Ina, um, last name Stillinger, just so we know. Um, it appeared to investigators that Ina passed away instantaneously. Um, well, unfortunately, Lena seemed to have woken up during the horrendous slaying. Um, Lena actually had a defensive wound on her arm, like she had, you know, tried to protect herself or, you know, and it was on her arm and on her thigh. <clears throat> also, this is, this is, uh, Potential SA, sexual assault warning on a child. Um, her nightgown was pulled up and her undergarments were removed and missing. So at the time, um, the coroner declared like no signs of, you know, molestation or sexual assault or anything like that. But this is the early 1900s. Who really knows? That is a disgusting way to find a precious little girl, you know. So. And even if even if it did happen, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. To, I mean, to her, obviously it does, but to the public, 
So when it comes to children, I would hope that they would just keep that fucking shut the fuck up about it. I know. And um, it would have been postmortem. So that's another. Uh, My first thing was when they went into the kids room was that's four kids. You know, the the three of them woke up. I know. I know. That was my first thing. And then when you said that she did, that's fucking horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, according to the Smithsonian, so I used the Smithsonian, I used Britannica, I used a few other bio, sorry, my (laughs) biographies, Velisca's own website for research. According to the Smithsonian article, the killer went back through the home and further disfigured the faces and heads of the more family members and the young sisters. Josiah, the father, husband, is reported to have had the most brutal attack um, post-mortem. Around 30-ish times he was hit in his head, ish, you know, ish. Um, This murderer then went through the home and covered each victim's face and the mirrors of the home with linen and cloths. The killer was assumed to have stuck around, quote unquote, for a while um, with a few very peculiar kind of factoids. First and foremost, a two pound slab of bacon was left downstairs wrapped in a towel with an unknown Potentially, because the thing is, is since this case is so old, there's so many, like, I don't know if it's necessarily hearsay or if, like, the facts, you know, telephoned. Um, one particular source said that there was an unknown keychain or a broken watch chain close to the bacon, um, which, by the way, the bacon was left downstairs in the Stillinger sister's bedroom. Potentially. Potentially. Okay. Um, there was a filled washing basin to clean the bloody mess off of the killer's, you know, hands, face, body. It's basically just like a bowl sitting on the kitchen table that was full of bloody water where this asshole decided to sit there and clean themselves after this horrific event. Um, now before sunrise, the killer actually left the oil lamp at the top of the stairs, stole their set of house keys, and locked up the house on their way out and disappeared at dawn. Um, now a concerned neighbor telephoned Josiah's brother who stepped into the house. You know, he had his key. Go. I kind of summed this part up pretty quickly, but... Um, made entry into the home, I'm guessing discovered the girls, ran out and said, call the sheriff immediately. Um, now the investigation began as a large group of locals also came and gawked at the crime scene and wandered the crime scene. So back in those days, I know, (laughs) back in those days, like this is what, 1910, 1912. And um, 
<clears throat> you know, statistically speaking, that the killer was probably one of those people as well. Could have been, for sure. Could have been. Um, and at that time, they weren't... I mean, obviously, science hadn't necessarily caught up to where we are now. So preserving the crime scene wasn't as mm-hmm. priority or, you know. And this is a small town, a well-known family, such a horrific crime in, it, in and of itself. Um, now, let's go into the potential suspects. Um Many, many, many rumors swirled. There were several, several, several suspects listed. And I'm going to go into each of those real quick. So suspects. And you kind of tell me what you think out of this list of people. I think it's interesting that there's so many potential suspects. Why? Yeah. Okay, go. So. Traveling Reverend Lynn Kelly had attended the previous day's children's performance at the Morris Church. Early the next day, he boarded a train. He's a traveling, you know, reverend dude. Boarded a tra- boarded a train and reportedly mentioned to people on the train that eight people had just been killed in Villisca as he's, you know, on the train out. A few weeks later, Kelly returned to the town and posed as a police detective, and he joined a search party of the murder scene. Search party. He joined an investigation of the murder scene and thankfully was eventually found out for being not a detective. He himself has a very interesting past. He apparently would post sex ads. Now it's in the, it's now listen. Now just wait, just wait. In the newspaper, wanting to hire a secretary who would work in the nude. <laughs> I mean, giggity giggity, Mr. <laughs> Reverend. <laughs> but um, now Kelly had actually confessed to the crimes, um, to all of the horrific details and slangs of this particular instance, but he later recanted and claimed police coercion. This is not the first instance of this in this case. They Next just, up. They wanted to find the suspects. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I, I can under, I not understand, but I can see that that would happen a lot. Yeah. Yep. So next up, Let me clear my throat, sorry. (coughs) Frank Jones. Now, Frank Jones was an Iowa state senator. Now, Frank and Josiah had a relationship, not (laughs) had a working business relationship, I would say. So Josiah had worked for Frank at his successful store in Villisca for several years. Josiah eventually quit his um, job there and actually launched his own store down the street. So imagine like general store, general store. So it's kind of like a rival business. Rumors spread very quickly 
about their relationship going sour. Apparently it was so bad that if they were walking um, past each other on the street, one of them would walk like across just so they wouldn't, you know, walk past each other. It was just silly kind of hearsay. Now rumors spread that this of course caused a serious rift on top of rumors of Josiah and Frank's daughter-in-law, Donna, being involved in a hot and heavy affair. Now, Donna herself was known around as, I don't want to say being a loose woman, just that term came to my mind, <laughs> being one who was very flirty um, and not the most loyal to How her. She was young. She was young, beautiful. Um, we'll pop a picture of her up. But Frank is tied into the suspects list, not only for his bad relationship, quote unquote, potentially bad relationship with Josiah. See, but hang on, because I mean, that gives motive to kill Josiah, but the entire family, the children, and the neighbors. That's, like, the neighbor girls, I mean, in the basement. They were in the basement? So, no, they were on the first floor. So, there's um, two floors of this house. And, basically, it's, as far as I can tell from, you know, the pictures of the museum, the episodes, paranormal mm -hmm. episodes I've watched, is that the first floor was kind of like the kitchen. You walk through to the sitting area, and then off to the side is the bedroom that the sisters were in. Now you go backtrack a little bit back to the kitchen. There's a staircase up um, the Moore's children bed, Moore's children's bedroom, and then short, short hallway to the parents' room in the attic area. So, as far as I know, that's the layout. Mm -hmm. um, just think of it, a very, very quaint home. Yeah, my only thing is okay, like you have reason to kill him. You have to be really fucked up to do that to the kids. Obviously, if you're going to kill him, his wife's going to wake up. You're probably subsequently going to kill her as well. And then, okay, go kill the kids. And then maybe on his way out, the neighbor girls woke up. And that might, you know, I just feel like it's uh, the first guy. <laughs> oh, just wait. Okay. Next on our list of suspects, I got two more for you. Now, two well-known axe murderers. Now, they both were serial killers. Um, and we'll start off with William. William's, William Mansfield was a Midwestern serial killer whose crime scenes looked remarkably similar to the Moore's home. He covered the mirrors, he covered the victims, and he had like a plate of half-eaten food, like he had hung around their house. Um, he was picked up for this slaying, obviously, for this horrific murder, um, but he claimed police brutality and coercion that eventually had him released from this particular crime. Now, um, 
William actually got, like, he sued the police department that picked him up and, like, tried pinning this on him for such um, horrific brutality and, you know, getting him to confess to this, that when he sued them, he won, even though he was a known, like, um, what's it called? Convicted serial killer. He won fucking money because obviously, you know, he had evidence to show that this particular police department, these investigators did that to him. Right. I'm just like, oh, like, damn it. You know, um, sucks, you know, that they were brutal to this dude, but. I'm getting the vibe to me that, um, the extra stuff was a failed attempt at a copycat. Well, listen to this. Mm-hmm. The next, the final suspect, I guess, um, ex-murdering ser- serial killer Henry Moore, he had the exact same MO as Mansfield. And the Liska murder. Z- sorry, murders. But he was never, ever, ever convicted because he was states away and had a solid alibi for this particular crime. There you go. So, uh, I first and foremost, I was like, it has to be one of these serial killers. Because, I mean, I mean, psychologically speaking, they say things like when um, a victim of a homicide is covered or, you know, like a pillow... <laughs> it's like a shame or um like remorse not remorse necessarily but yeah like a shame kind of thing yeah but for all of them to do that and it's not even just the mirrors that um these two guys covered it was like windows like um doors with pain like glass panes so it was just to like cover everything but it just, and even to cover the mirrors, like, you're like, I don't want to look at myself because of what I just did. Mm-hmm. But for no, them to me, all. I mean, I know I already made my decision that it was the first guy, but that it just keeps leading up to it. Because even though time, I mean, not time, stories move fast, especially in a small town. I think it's very telling that he already knew the amount of victims and that they were brutally murdered and details about that. That kind of gives it away for me. The fact yeah. that he's back in disguise. It, it all just, it all adds up to me. This guy did it. That's yeah, I can, like, I'll play devil's advocate and say somebody made up that whole train thing. Oh, somebody talk- made it up. And then maybe he, <laughs> despite, like, his kinks, maybe he was like, you know what? I want to try to help solve this horrific crime because I just met these people. <laughs> I don't think so. And I think his kink is a very um, telling thing for what happened to the little girl. The state Potentially. She- Potentially. But regardless, the state she was found in, regardless Potentially. She might have potentially not been found in that state. Well, I'm just saying, like, there's so many. Like, Josiah was hit with the, with the sharp side. No, Sarah was hit with the sharp side. I'm just saying there's so much and it's such an older case I don't and it's not definitive that she was molested um 
her honestly like or definitive that she was found without her undergarments like absolutely set in stone I didn't look at her you know autopsy or like her uh, crime scene photos because of course they didn't have them then but um so I don't I don't want to say like definitive that she was found that way because she easily could in like defending herself her dress could have fallen up well you when know? you first said that so she had a defensive wound on her arm from on her, her thigh too but thigh which I found found interesting and I would go as far as to assume I assumed when you first said it this is a big assumption so you know bear with me that that was done in, in anger after she died and also to leave her in that state if that's the state she was left in um even if he didn't assault her but as like a fuck you for defending yourself that's what i assumed the thigh mark was and if they i hope she wasn't molested that's horrific i was kind of seeing it as her um putting her arm in her leg like imagine laying down and waking up to that and being like <gasps> you know could have been that but at the same time i mean i don't know and why go back through like how much rage much must you have to go back through and then brutalize all of their faces post-mortem that's that's not rage at that point that's mental um right and that that shows that either like the serial killers but unless the two of their crime or one because the other one had an alibi the other guy's crime scene did he also disfigure their faces i didn't see that that's but, a i mean those two would be a good would be a good you know episode down the line to look into mm -hmm. their crimes because it was very like i didn't dive head first yeah. into them places you know that i was researching um episodes that i was watching you know graced over that yeah the big the big suspect that a lot of people hold on to is um reverend lynn kelly so which i could see but he i don't know I, I, I think he's a phony. I, I peg him, too. I just... I don't know. I would have uh, police brutalized him. Brutal I don't know what the right word would be. But, but it could also have just been, like, an evil person in the night. I don't know. Uh, That's the thing about this more than horrific, heinous case is that there is no answer. There are no answers. Um, six children, two adults, all slain with no clear answer to who the fuck did it, which is just awful. Like, this puzzle will never be solved definitively, you know? Um, now, like I said, the house itself, since the 90s, has been completely restored and turned into a tourable museum. Um, and... It's just, I mean, even looking at the pictures, it makes me like sick to my tummy, <laughs> my tummy, sick to <laughs> my stomach. Just it makes me feel uneasy. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's a site for many a paranormal investigation. <laughs> Discovery Plus actually has, if you search Villisca Murder House, um, 
loads of episodes from different shows will pop up like Ghost Adventures, Dead Files, Ghost Hunters, Destination Fear, the list goes on. Um, now the main hauntings in this house, people do say that it has such a heavy feeling in the home. I'm sure. Um, and you can hear disembodied footsteps, voices, see apparitions, shadow people, heavy energy, negativity, children laughing and playing, um, things like that, which is just... At that point, yeah, it's like you definitely don't want to hear um, any intelligent spirits in that place. You definitely want to assume that they have moved on and that they're in a better place. But just imagine the residual energy. Oh my gosh, I know. How how suffocating that must feel like. Yeah. Yep. And it just... Ugh, a lot of, like, um, Ghost Adventures and Dead Files, for instance, their episodes were like, the killer is still here. Like, the killer is still here with the family. And they're trapped. And da-da-da-da. And, like, um, Lena and Ina are still here too. And it's just like, gosh, like, instead of, and I feel like I say this a lot, um, instead of exploiting this horrific, horrendous, disgusting crime and murder of all eight of these people, why don't you try to figure out a way to clear it, to mm -hmm. move these people on into, you know, I don't know. I'm alfalfaing over here, did, but did Amy Allen not try to clear it? Um, she, <laughs> which is also, she had like named who she thought the suspect was. Who? Um, Kelly. And the the owner, the current owner now, or I don't know if he's the owner or if he's like the um. Like the groundskeeper. I'm, mm. not, I'm pretty sure he's the owner. He also believes that it was Kelly as well. I think that one, it just checks out as unfortunate and you don't want to think that and you want to think the best and he did that. Um, no, I think if he wanted to be a part of the investigation, he would have came back as a reverend. That's what I think. Yeah. I think he had very ill intentions. And there is there could always be some truth to it. Um, the train story... It could be that he, like I said, like, I assumed right off the top of my head that if they were having people walk through the house, like neighbors, the killer for sure was there. Like, that's just my personal opinion, because they do like to go back to their crime scenes within a few hours of the crime happening, especially. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so that is the Villisca axe murders um that is just oh my gosh and you know Thinking, what's awful? what uh it is not about to get any warmer because mine I is know. fucking brutal too i know it Ugh. that was a rough one to start with though Ooh. i'm so sorry i was like should i save this for last and i just Felt like starting us off with a bang, I guess. Our yeah. last two will be um, not as child involved, right? Yeah. 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 
Okay, guys. So, like I said, it is not going to get much brighter over here. Um, my story is also very intense. So, we'll pop up a little trigger warning time to go ahead and skip on through if you guys don't want to hear about brutality. But if you sickos do, listen up. Prepare to head back to Germany in 1922 with us, which already in itself is kind of a kind of a place to be in at the time. But for the group, it turned brutally tragic. Mm. Who are the groupers? You may be wondering. What a random name. (sighs) They were a family of five. They owned a farm in Bavaria, Germany. I apologize if I don't say any of these words right because I'm not German. Um, their farm was named Hinterkaifeck. Maybe. Uh, this farming family consisted of the father, Andres, his wife, Kazelia, their adult daughter, who was also a widowed mother, Victoria, and her two children, seven-year-old Kazelia, named after her grandmother, and two-year-old Yosef. Now, they also had a maid who was living with them, and her name was Maria Baumgartner. Spoiler alert, this entire family was found slaughtered in the most gruesome way, a horrific crime, as Britt stated earlier, that to this day, it is unsolved. (sighs) Okay, that's so awful. Yes. Okay, here we go. It really is. And it, like, it gave me, um, still kind of gives me nightmares thinking about it. So it's got me a little on edge. So bear with me. Oh, I bet you. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you do. Days before their demise, the father, Andres, had noticed some weird fucking shit going on. Okay? Footsteps in the snow leading out uh, of the ward. footsteps in the snow leading out of the woods towards the house and never heading back out a newspaper in the house yeah a newspaper in the house that he didn't remember buying and one of the family's two house keys disappearing their what one of the family's two house keys disappearing now of course in normal true crime horror movie fashion he didn't rush to go tell the police he just told a few of his friends um this to me this to me sounds like the work of a poltergeist right off the bat which i will always jump to the paranormal when it comes to stuff like this but i wasn't the only one who thought of ghosts they had another maid who had quit six months before the murders because she wholeheartedly believed that the entire farm was haunted. Hmm. Oh, could that make her a suspect with a really deep alibi? She started six months ago with this long ass alibi. Maybe, but when police interrogated her, she kept to her story um, of ghosts and indulged further by saying she believed the farm was haunted because she kept hearing footsteps in the attic and Uh had a, Yeah, and had a constant feeling of being watched. Her former boss, Andres, had dismissed her concerns as just straight superstition. 
I wouldn't say paranormal. I would say you have a, what do they call it nowadays? Frogging. You have like an art fucking nightmare. Somebody living no, in literally. your attic. I was say, I was gonna say it's surprising that your story and my story have this because it goes further than that. At first, reading about this, I did jump to like, oh, that sounds like a poltergeist, but not even like. I don't think because we have paranormal investigated for on and off for like coming on twenty years, sixteen years, fifteen yeah. years, yeah, twenty. Goddamn. Well, I mean. <laughs> you think about it no not 20 but definitely like between 17 and 15 and 17 years so we've done it for a little while and we've come into contact on very 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 rare occasions with something that i would classify as non-human or demon we've kind of talked about that in our past episodes um but as far as a standard spirit causing like killing you that's just not something that that I believe is possible. I don't think spirits can kill you. Um, but I think that they can, that they are not like in a godly way, all knowing, but I think that they know certain things when you die. And I think that if things are being moved and things are happening and the maid six months prior is, is aware of certain things. And she also thinks that it's haunted. I think it might be like, someone trying to give someone a sign of something's happening okay i don't mm. think murdered by a poltergeist i just think that some of the things moving around and things like that happening um could be but since then maybe not <laughs> Uh oh. i'm jumping ahead and i'm jumping all over so let me just like go back let's go back to the week of this horrific murder crime scene um, seven-year-old Kazalia was absent from school on April 1st, and in the following days, their community noticed that they had missed church, which Victoria sang in the choir, so it was very unlike them to miss church. When seven-year-old Kazalia missed school again, coupled with a large stack of mail piling up at the post office, a search party was created very quickly. Now, I will say that they are... Their farm is out a little bit. It's not right in town. So um, no one's like seeing them exit the house every single day. You know, it's like it's for it's a farm. It's further out. Um, so I think it's really, I don't know. The search party was created right away. It's just like, yeah. Anyway, so on April 4th, the search party, which was led by Lawrence Schlittenbauer, um, a neighboring farmer who had previously had a relationship with the widowed mother, Victoria, led this search party. That the seems a little suspicious, right? Stay tuned. The search okay. party farm and the details of what they found is not for the faint of heart. And I am giving a massive trigger warning because it is truly fucked up. Four bodies were found in the barn covered in hay. That was the body of the grandmother, Kazalia. She had had her skull cracked from multiple blows to the head, as well as signs of strangulation. Young seven-year-old Kazalia had her jaw shattered and her face and neck were covered with gaping circular wounds. 
Kazalia's mother, mother, the widow, Victoria, also had her skull shattered. Her head showed nine star-shaped wounds. What? And the, right side, and the right side of her face had been hit with a blunt object. object. The father, Andres, had blood caked all over his face. Also noted his face was described as shredded with his cheekbones sticking out of his ragged flesh. Okay, so how did they surmise this to be an axe murder? Um, wait for it. Okay. Now, that was just the first four bodies that they found in the barn. Also covered. Um, now, the new maid, Maria whose first day on the job was the day she was murdered. Oh, God. Yes. And two-year-old Yosef were found outside oh. of the farmhouse. Maria had been covered in her sheets, and sweet baby Joseph, Yosef, I'm sorry, was covered in one of his mother's dresses. The two of them appeared to have died quickly after a number of blows to their heads and faces. The tool used in the murder was like likely a mattock, a pickaxe-like tool used for digging, although it was never found. Oh. All of the victims most likely died instantly, with the exception of seven-year-old Kazalia. No. The autopsy revealed that she had lived several hours after the murders, and clumps of her own hair was found in her hands which suggested that she had torn out her hair in distress before dying of shock. Oh, my God. Yeah. The police initially suspected vagrants, but strangely enough, enough, nothing from the farm had been stolen, with large sums of money found still within the house. Um, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, Victoria's boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend, or lover, whatever they are, may have been Yosef's father, the two-year-old. Um, he was a suspect, but his alibi held up and couldn't place him at the scene. What I find really wild is that uh, Lorenz and Victoria had planned to get married until her father, Andres, um, interfered. And mm -hmm. it ended. Schlittenbauer. Why did I fucking put his last name there? <laughs> Lorenz. <laughs> Lorenz eventually married someone else and then they had a child who died in infancy. Oh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, a seriously disturbing, disgusting, and quickly debunked rumor claimed that Andres had fathered Yosef on his own daughter, with his own daughter. Oh. And yeah, and he had killed the whole family before turning the axe on himself. Um, Andres's openness for incest and abuse were frequently discussed in the neighboring town, supposedly. Oh, gross. Yeah. yeah, but he had had other children with Kazalia, had other children with Kazalia besides Victoria, but she was the only one to survive his violent hands into adulthood. So... Him and his wife had multiple children. Victoria was the only one that survived to becoming an adult. The rest of them died as children from his abuse. Like, that's confirmed? That's what five different documents stated. Because what the I, fuck? 
I dove deep into the incestual side of it. Yeah. Um, I was like, that's because we'll get to the suspects and it had me like, it had convinced. Right. Um, however, okay. So Victoria had siblings. They all died. Sucks to be Victoria and her husband, but he didn't die from the father. I'm sorry. It does suck to be Victoria, but that's, that's on that side. Um, However, they were able to debunk the rumor that Andres, the father, killed everyone because none of the wounds were self-inflicted. None of them. So, what is even more sick is the fact that the farm animals and family dog had not been harmed and had, in fact, even been fed and tended to in the days between the murders and their discovery. Smoke had been seen coming from the chimney in those days as well, suggesting that the murderer had been living calmly at the farmstead. And when you think back to the previous maid and her claims, the murderer could have been living inside of the home for over six months. The murderer had to be someone who was familiar with farm work as the killer maintained the farm for days and was handy with an axe. Oh, God. But not someone who lived on the Gruber farm itself. It's possible that the murderer had a grudge against one or more of the members of the family. But regardless, police have never solved this murder. And with the investigation going cold, they turned to supernatural help for some guidance. After their autopsies, the Gruber family had their heads removed and sent to Munich where clairvoyants were employed to seek out metaphysical clues from the Gruber family skulls. What? Yes. Okay. The, the Hinterkaifeck farm was demolished the year after the murders and the Grubers were laid to rest in a nearby cemetery. With their heads? Without their heads. Because those were lost during World War II. Oh my God. A monument stands today where the farm used to be, memorializing the victims. Everybody, including the maid and the children's heads? All of them. That makes me want to fucking throw up. Yeah. Now, initially, Lorenz was, like, suspect number one, right? They went straight to him. He had his alibi, and they literally found no other suspects. Yeah. Um, what? Yeah. Pretty unbelievable. I'm sorry, I'm baffled. Yeah. It is um, as, like, just as awful as you could imagine. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily, like, a lack of, um like a lack in the police side of it. I think it was Germany in the 1920s and like, what in the fuck? Do you think, like, is there any rumors as far as like, um, I don't know. The thing that's got me like twisted, the thing that gets me fucked up when I think about it is, okay. And it does bring me back to, like, a poltergeist or even further supernatural thing. Although, 
I want to disagree because I don't truly believe that that could be possible, but it brings me back there because yes, the keys were missing. Yes, the footsteps were heard in the attic. Yes, the newspaper was there. The footsteps outside in the snow. This dude or woman may have been hiding or living in this attic for six months or more or whatever. Um, only one time did they find a set of footprints heading only into the house, not outside of the house. Ugh. Yeah. And there was never, like, the search party didn't find, the, like, if he's tending to the farm afterwards, how many days is he staying? And they saw smoke leading there up until they got there. So when did he dip out? Did he see the townsfolk coming and just dip out and then they just didn't see his footprints? It's all very eerie and it left the police baffled. There was no DNA. There was nothing left. And from what I heard, there was no signs of anyone living in the attic. So like uh, how your story had cigarette buds all over the attic, there was nothing. Ugh. Yeah. And he covered all too. He what? He covered all of them too. Which I just, I don't. And they, they think it was one killer. Mm-hmm. Um, could there be something like, because I know, like, World War Two was it going on or was it ending? Well, World War One had just ended and it was you know what? a good amount of time before world war ii or 40 yeah so i don't know that's my mind was like um like some sort of like a family annihilation assassination type thing but i don't know i mean victoria's late husband he died in world war one oh that's how she was a um a widow now i i didn't get the year he died during the war. Um, but I, I, no, I don't think it had anything to do. I don't think it was like a planned murder. So that is the unsolved, horrific, hinterfeigetic Gruber family murders. So what's your opinion? What do you think happened to them? I don't know. I go back and forth. Like, um, you want to think that I don't know, honestly. I think that it's possible that it was something paranormal, even if it was, like, other dimension. I don't know. Just because of the 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 weirdness with the instant disappearance, you know? That's, that's what's got me hung up, is this fool fucking stayed at the farm with the dead bodies there, tending to the fucking animals and cooking his fucking food and no footprints are anywhere. So he didn't leave the house and no one else saw him, although they do live further out. I mean, they still have fucking neighbors. No one saw this guy. He was able to live in their attic for six months going completely unnoticed. The only time that they found footsteps was one time. It's just, this has got to be either the best most elusive fucking serial killer 
or it's the maid, the original one, or I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that they, if they were in, if somebody was in that home for so long, then they would have a crawl space to hide. I don't know. But I also don't think that they, like, say they tended to the animals and they're like, you know what? I've been here for, you know, two or three days. I need to get going. They light a fire so it still has that appearance. And they make their getaway to where it's like, maybe it snows. Maybe there's no snow on the ground. So they're a lot like their footsteps aren't being traced. There's um, like a way around it. I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, it's gross. No matter what it is. And the problem is there's so many, like the psychic thing. That sounds weird. And they're still buried without their heads. Yeah, I don't know. They they got so screwed all the way around. Yeah. And the ones that, like, it just is so heartbreaking for, seven-year-old little baby girl and two-year-old Yosef. It's just awful. I know. That um, just makes me want to throw up. Oh. Yeah, and then when I think about the state she was in and how long she was alive, I, oh like, gosh... Like, the fact that she had ripped her own hair out. I just, like... And for that to be, like, that person to just be there with her. But she was alive for hours. After she watched her entire family be brutally murdered. Ugh. Yeah. It's so sad. Horrible. Anyways. I'm gonna pass it on back to you. Ugh, okay. Mine is a <laughs> very well-known, um, has its own nursery rhyme, hint, hint. Let me grab my notes, excuse me. <clears throat> Most of us, if not all of us, have heard this rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. We are talking about Lizzie Borden, 1860s baby. Um, such beautiful, creative children that came up with that horrifying, disgusting <laughs> crap. <laughs> like, y'all, relax, 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 relax. Okay, so, August 4th, 1892. Beautiful, sunny day. In the bustling Fall River, Massachusetts business area of town. Um, not a one thing seemed out of place at the Borden home. That is, until there was a murder. Dun dun dun! Double murder, really. <laughs> Double homicide. Um, Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother, was found face down on the floor in their guest bedroom. Murdered with a hatchet. What is funny is that they got the fucking rhyme wrong. Technically, she was murdered. Um, Abby was murdered with a hatchet, not an axe. And she didn't get, quote unquote, I hate this word, wax. Like, stop it. She didn't get 40 hits. 
she didn't take 40 hits. She took like max 18. She did get more than the father, though, which keep that in mind. Now, Andrew Borden, Lizzie Borden's father, was found laying across his napping sofa downstairs with his face completely unrecognizable. Several swings of a hatchet were to blame. Like I said, Abby, her stepmom, received like max 18. He received like max 11. So just to kind of give you an idea. But it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well, apparently, for those children. Especially uh, when you hit 10, does it really matter how many whacks they got? As long I as know. it's more than fucking... 10? I mean, that's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lizzie and their servant, Bridget, they called her a servant in some sources, live-in maid, whatever you want to say. Bridget, were home at the time. Now, I have some kind of fucked up stuff about uh, Lizzie and her sister, Emma, I'll get into in just a minute. Let me turn the page of my notes. Backstory, okay? You might have heard me say hatchet and not axe. Like I said, it wasn't an axe that was used in these particular murders. It was a hatchet. But a hatchet is like a little baby axe, right? Right? So the Borden parents were actually murdered with a sharpened hatchet. That's redundant. <laughs> I just... <laughs> in case you didn't hear me. Um, now Andrew Borden was a hardworking, wealthy real estate developer at the time. He began as a local undertaker and worked his way up to the accomplished businessman that he was. Um, Andrew was known to not be super polite, to be, um, extremely frugal. Think almost like Scrooge-like. Um, apparently when he worked as an undertaker, just to like, this is, I know a better word, to cut cost, if somebody, if he was putting somebody in a coffin and they didn't fit in this particular size coffin, he would cut off their feet to make them fit so that he didn't have to pay for like a new coffin to be created for said victim. Just weird kind of cutting costs thing. What in the fuck? I know. And in their their house, for instance, so this man, this man's is so extremely successful and they're living in like this kind, I don't want to say mediocre because it's a good size home, beautiful home. Um, But for their like financial standing, it was a little bit mediocre in that they were in the hustle bustle part of the city and not on like the ritzy side of town. They also did not have bathrooms, electricity, or indoor plumbing, which was a very popular addition for the well-to-dos at this time. And it seemed unnecessary to Andrew Borden, like an unnecessary cost or expense, I'm sorry. Um, so like I said, they had a servant slash maid Bridget, my hands, I just did my nails today, so my hands are like, 
<laughs> I'm going to both sit on them. Um, Lizzie and her sister Emma were expected to do household chores. And so was Abby because Abby was actually upstairs changing the sheets in the guest room when she was murdered. So he, if you think like, what are those shows on TLC where people are so like, I have to save money, I have to save money, where they like reuse the water yeah. on the stove? Like, think like that kind of a person, like almost a little OCD or have having a little bit something going on where they won't um, spend the necessary money. Excuse me. Now, <laughs> Lizzie and Emma, these two, they grew up in a very privileged home. Um... And they actually called Bridget the maid, the current maid slash servant, at the time of their parents' death. They called her by their previous maid's name, Maggie, on purpose. Oh, so, I know. It was giving, like, it was giving <laughs> Miranda Priestly energy, like, Emily, you know. Yeah. Um, until, you know, but they, they called her fucking Maggie for who knows how long. Anyway, so the the girls were actually both in their 30s at this point and were unmarried. Um, which I, <laughs> at this point in time, it's like just about to be the 1900s. They absolutely were labeled as spinsters slash old maids at, you know, early 30s. Like, Lizzie was 32 at the time of this murder, so you're older than me. Like, never thought of Lizzie. I thought they were, like, teenagers. Oh, I know. That's so weird. I know. So, um, both of the girls, both of, both of the sisters, were interested in funds from their dad, and the lack of his, you know, tight money pouch was a rough topic. Like, the fact that he wasn't, you know, willing to make, uh, you know, what's it called? Renovations on their home. You know, not even yeah. willing to relocate them to a home that has those said re renovations. It was just a really tricky topic you know, the girls with their father, obviously. Now, I do want to point out that Lizzie herself wasn't just some spoiled brat. She wasn't just, you know, like Baruch Assault in um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. She was actually um, a well-recognized and well, like, beloved before this instance um, Sunday school teacher at the church that they attended. Yeah. She really adored charity work and fundraising for local causes. Um, sh sure, like, she wanted the high life. She wanted, a, like, a higher society man, potentially. Um, but she also really wanted to give back to her community. And I think that that's important to note, especially in this particular case, because it wasn't all about, you know... Daddy doesn't give me money, you know. It yeah. wasn't like that. Um, it was but... like cutting the feet off of 
dead people. I know. It, it I was Daddy's horrible. Yep. I so mean. she also loved nice things and she loved beautiful clothes. She was like the essence of chic. She was fucking yassifying it around town, let's just say. Um, now, two days before the shocking murder, a case of violent and sudden food poisoning befell the Borden house. Andrew, Abby, and Bridget were very, very ill. Luckily, or suspiciously, Lizzie was spared. Hmm. Emma, her sister, um, was actually out of town during this whole time. But so strange. Poor, those poor three. They're so sick. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Lizzie and Bridget did not have a very civil relationship. Um, but Bridget claimed to hear Lizzie laughing maniacally at the top of the stairs. Now, at the top of these specific stairs, you like look right into the guest room and you would have seen Abby dead on the floor, like right away. So this was just kind of like a hearsay comment, you know? Now, not only that, but Lizzie's story changed her alibi to where exactly she was in that house changed quite a lot and like i said this house was very quaint and abby the stepmom herself she was around like 200 pounds um so both bridget and lizzie should have heard her falling to the floor after being struck the first time you would think right mm. but neither 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 of them all did Neither, neither of them did. Um, apparently, Lizzie was inquiring about cyanide from a <laughs> local doctor and pharmacist. Um, unfortunately, this was like two days prior to her parents' death. It's a little suspicious. A little mm -hmm. suspicious. Um... Lizzie was also telling her close friend that she felt like something bad was coming. Something really terrible is going to happen. I just can feel it. And she was telling this to Alice. Remember that name. Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm kind of jumping the gun there. Uh, <laughs> Alice, <laughs> not only is Bridget like, I heard Lizzie laughing maniacally. Lizzie wasn't where she said she was. Uh, she called me Maggie, bitch, dumb bitch. <laughs> but um, Alice supposedly, she told investigators that she supposedly witnessed Lizzie burning a gown, an entire outfit really, that was covered in red paint before the police investigated the home. Which, by the way, was days after the murders. So they didn't, wait, they didn't investigate until days after the murders. Yes, ma'am. Were the did they know that they that the bodies were there? Did they know they were dead? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So they like they just out. It's oh my gosh, my parents are dead. Help! The police come. The bodies are removed. They don't do a full sweep of the house and investigate the crime scenes and all of that jazz for a few days. Because this is a very like well-to-do family, so right. you want to give them their privacy. Sure. Yeah, but supposedly Alice witnessed her burning a dress covered in quote-unquote wink wink red paint. Okay, Alice. Now, Lizzie's alibi or alibis. She was ironing handkerchiefs um, in the dining room. She was crafting fishing lines and looking for a piece of um, lead to repair a broken window screen in the shed in the back. Um, she was picking fruit off of their pear tree and just, you know, got lost in that activity. Um, she was upstairs, she was downstairs, she was outside, she was inside, uh, but she was never seen covered in blood. So like, honey, how many motherfucking stories do you have to have? How many different stories? But she also was never seen covered in blood. So there is that. But um, Bridget's alibis, or alibi, I should say, she, although she was violently ill, still, she was violently ill still from <laughs> the food poisoning, quote unquote, um, she was still, still had to do her job, was washing the outdoor and indoor windows, apparently. Supposedly, Bridget spoke to a, a neighbor for a minute, um, she went and took a little nap because she was still feeling ill. Like, <clears throat> I don't know. Now, Lizzie was acting suspicious. Like, right away, people were like, this girl is being really suspicious. Not to mention, like, her ever-changing story and endless alibis and, you know, different... <laughs> maybe I was here. No, maybe I was there. You know, it even changed, yeah. like in the courtroom during her trial, like she changed on the spot. Um, but after the murders of her loving, caring father and stepmother, uh, she appeared emotionless and indifferent. At her parents' funeral, she wore a gorgeous, but not appropriate black gown, lace, form-fitting, super snatched, like, gasp, not, not what you wear when you're mourning your parents. Um, she was never seen crying. Mourning or shock really isn't a reason to judge someone. Um, especially like we, we say that now, like you will never know, like psychologically speaking, you don't know how you would react in a moment or like when something like that were to happen. If you discovered your parents brutally murdered you don't know how you would react. I don't know. I think shock can last a couple days, but um, sometime their funeral in the courtroom. Right, right, right. But I hate like when people say, well, they were immediately a suspect because they weren't crying at the scene. Yeah, well, shock can do that to people, you know? 
shock can that kind of thing. But it is definitely a red flag because the majority of people, their shock won't be like send them into being emotionless. Like it'll put them well, in. It'll. It can either make you very emotional. It can make you catatonic. It can make you almost <coughs> like to do listy. I need right. to call this person. I need to get this done. Like but it really just depends. Nonchalant, like you're like, um, they're like, I mean, they were hit with an axe 18 times and you're like, um, ooh, like yeah. bums, like, but do I still get the life insurance? Like, that's where it's like, okay, you're not remorseful at all. Right. I don't know. How she acted. I wasn't there. I'm just. <laughs> right. So Lizzie and Emma, they, their biological mother, she had died when they were younger. Her brother, so their biological uncle, John Morris, was a brief subject. Subject. <laughs> Suspect. Sorry. Um, so he had about a mile-long alibi to clear him, which, okay. But he was actually staying at the house um, when the murders occurred. Now. Wait, what? Yeah. So... And he was his alibi. Huh? He wasn't violently ill. No. Hmm. Yeah. So his alibi, like I said, was a mile long and had way too much fucking detail. But no one saw him. Like his his alibi, I don't know if I go into it. No. His alibi, like, he had left that morning to go somewhere. He took a, a specific uh, trolley or a train, and he spoke to this many people, and they, he knew, like, this specific name and the, these people's names and the number on the trolley and da-da-da, like, had so many details, but it was like, why the fuck do you have that many details? In my head, I'm like, okay, you're collecting all that data, and then you're going to jump off the little bus trolley train thing and double back to complete this murder not to mention this is your ex-brother-in-law's home you don't know nook and crannies to hide in especially if um lizzie's like no police you can't investigate the house and then the police leave and she's like uncle john come out so i don't know just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, now, seven days after her parents' death and murders, Lizzie was arrested. And a trial was set, and she was held in jail um, for about a month until trial. Now, family whispers about her involvement. Um... Could she have done it? Could she have not done it? Did John help her? Did her and John work together? Is she being framed? Um, Bridget obviously, obviously testified against her. Hearing her laughing. Um, <coughs> like disparaging her character. Things like that. Um, her best friend Alice testified against her. Burning the quote unquote red stained dress. Sure, Alice. I don't know. Um, but what's interesting 
is the prosecution was unable to prove that the Bordens, that any of, sorry, <laughs> the prosecution was unable to prove that any of the Bordens' hatchets were the murder weapon. Now, how they did this was a lot like your case, K. They um, took the heads of both Abby and Andrew, uh, sent them somewhere after their funeral, which, by the way, were open casket. Yes. <laughs> now, say, like, Andrew's face is, like, from here over is just demolished. They, like, propped his head like this. So you would see, like, the not-so-demolished side. Gross, right? Anyway, so they took their heads, had someone boil them down to the bone to measure, like, oh, does this hatchet fit in there? Nope, that one doesn't fit. Does this one fit in there? Oh, are we sure it's a hatchet and not this? Oh, nope. So they, this was like a part of like their evidence building for the case, right? Well, it came to conclusion that none of the Borden's hatchets could be the weapon because none of them had blood on them. What? That's so crazy. It's not like someone could wipe that fucking blood off, you know? But of course, you know, back in the day, they couldn't do like luminol testing or you know, testing a specific object for, well, this actually does have trace amounts of blood. So anyway, mm. um, the testimonies themselves didn't hold any solid evidence. It was just a whole lot of hearsay. Um, another argument was that this crime and the brutality of it all was <laughs> a man's crime, quote, unquote. <laughs> could never be a woman. Could never be. Mm. Like, okay, 1800s, fucking chill. Women <laughs> can be just as violent as men. Like, misogyny. Let me say it again. I know. Women can be just as violent as men. And it's... <laughs> like, okay. Okay. Have her be a little... Wolf in sheep's clothing. Alright. Um... At the end of the trial, though, Lizzie was acquitted. The judge is quoted saying that Lizzie was most likely guilty. <laughs> but it wasn't proven without a doubt because of the lack of evidence, because it being a man's crime. Da-da-da-da-da. So, long story short, Lizzie and Emma inherited their father's estate and moved to that ritzy side of town where they always wanted. Huh? That of course they did. Mm-hmm. And over the years, the sisters remained unmarried, high society pariahs, and eventually had a pretty bad falling out. Now, Lizzie changed her name to Lizbeth thinking that that would kind of thwart some of the awful behaviors um, she received from her community. And that was, <laughs> uh, actually, my name's not Lizzie, it's Lizbeth. Like, okay, 
same fucking thing. Why don't you just call yourself like Bridget <laughs> or Maggie? Maggie. <laughs> like completely change it, lady. Now, um, she was up until she died. She was a pariah to her community. Like I said, um, she was a charitable donator, but anonymously because she it wasn't until she died when they when people like reviewed her financial statements where they were like oh my gosh she's been you know she is one of the highest charity charitable donors that we have but she did it anonymously because of you know her status and um reputation i should say so when lizzie died her and her sister had been estranged for years at this point. And her sister actually died the following week in June 1927. And this entire murder of their parents is unsolved to this day. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. What in the heck? Like, I wonder what else could have gone on in, like, how did her biological mom die? Um, I think it was, I'm sorry, I'm going to move my notes. I think it was just illness. It wasn't the dad crazy. Huh? Like the dad didn't do anything? Um, no, but he remarried quickly. Girls, um, had called their stepmom mother for a long time and then they had like a huge argument long story short huge argument about like a financial situation and after that they would call her mrs borden they wouldn't call her like mother or um abby <laughs> okay mrs borden but i'm also like okay um these high society daughters of yours emma was very like to herself not, you know, um, a little introverted, a little, uh, I don't want to say like socially awkward, but would not mind living in a nice home to herself. Now, Lizzie was the one who liked nice things, nice clothes, going to events, plays, parties, all of this stuff while also giving away to charity, you know, but, um, these two, Da your two daughters, they're in their 30s and they're still not married. Why didn't they get married? I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I think there's something, there's a bigger picture there that we'll probably never know. Yeah. I mean, we will never know. Um, but I also like, I'm not completely convinced that she's guilty. <laughs> Well, who I do think, you um, in my opinion, there's a few suspects. So Andrew himself was like, I told you, he was not a polite man. He was a very wealthy businessman, but he had enemies. You know, I think it could have been like Mr. or Miss enemy, you know, um, mm -hmm. I think it could have been Lizzie. I think it could have been Lizzie and her uncle. I think it could have been Bridget. Bridget. 
I think no matter who did it, Lizzie knew that there was like a hit on her parents. That's what I, that's what I think. I think that no matter who did it, whether she did it herself, then of course she knew it was going to happen. If it was her uncle, he was like, you're going to get all the money, you and Emma, make sure Emma's out of the house. Um, and if it was Bridget, then that was like something that they decided together. Like I, um, but then Bridget was against her. So I don't think it was Bridget. I think it could have been Bridget, but it was an easy way to be like, it's Lizzie, you know, just because you're sitting here. But another like loop, not loophole, what's the word? Plot hole that um, I don't understand is they say like she was um, emotionless when like the police came. Um, but at the time her doctor came to the house and gave her like a large dose of morphine to like simmer down. And so that's like one of the reasons why her doctor was like, that's why her story keeps changing because she doesn't remember. She was on like, she was very, very like loaded on morphine mm -hmm. um, to help with her grief. So I'm like, was she grieving? Is this still all hearsay because of the whole like Lizzie Borden of it, you know? Right. Interesting. I don't know. It's a shame we'll never know. Yes, it's a mystery. Yeah. Um, I will say that there is uh, a TV show and a movie that I recommend. Um, I'm pretty sure it's on Lifetime. Don't judge me. But it stars um, Christina Ricci as Lizzie Borden. And it was a really good watch. Really good watch. People also label her, which I thought this was kind of fucked up. So she was unmarried. We know that. She was the suspect, the suspect for her parents' deaths. But they also um, kind of labeled her as a lesbian. And back in those days, that was like a no-no, you know? Mm -hmm. I just think that that's fucked up. Yeah, I think it's like... You can't really point the finger at her and then say Emma wasn't too, you know? Like, they were both yeah. in. Yeah. Who knows? And why is that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What happened to them? Is what I want to know. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's very weird. <sighs> so that is my final story for Vicious Crimes. Last one up is you, <laughs> sissy. Yes, thank you. Thank you that much. So... My second story, The Unsolved Crazy Moiters. Moiters! Um, <laughs> Not another moita. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the Axemen of New Orleans. Now, what the heck? The Axemen of New Orleans. I am here to tell you guys. So buckle up for safety because here we go. This oh of terror in the streets of New Orleans in 1918. Primary all yeah, I know I noticed that too. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when you think about we're doing this was also unsolved. Um so we had a theme of unsolved axe murders for this episode. So I think if an axe murder happened today, I think it'd be solved. Solvable. 
solvable. Yeah, I have a yeah. being solved, you know. But yeah. anyway, so yes. All right. So New Orleans, 1918. Primarily targeted Italians. Yes. Made this a very odd serial killer. Oh jeez. Yeah. The first recorded victims didn't actually die. They were grocery store owners, um, Louis Basumer and his mistress, Harriet. Oh, yeah. They were attacked in the store on March 13th, 1918, and both miraculously survived. But strangely enough, this is, like, so odd. Uh, it's not uh, <laughs> Lewis attempted to murder Harriet later down the road and was arrested and charged. But we're just going to breeze right past that for the time being. Okay? And we're never... Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. Okay, Louis, chill the fuck out. <laughs> the second victim, the second known victim, I should say, was another grocer, Italian New Orleans resident, uh, Joseph Romano, who was less fortunate than the first two victims and died in his home on August 10th, 1918, less than a month after Louis and Harriet were attacked. The accident oh. continued over the next several months. The victims, including Charles... Cortimigila, Julia, so our homie Charles, his wife Rosie, and their infant daughter Mary. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Sarah Lumen and her daughter, and Pauline Bruno. Hmm. Infamous Axman's attacks were not limited to grocers and their families. He also targeted the home of a police officer, Michael David, and his wife and children. But thankfully, they managed to fiend off the attacker. Oh, wow. Yeah. In total, there were at least eight confirmed victims, but some estimates put the number as high as 12. Yeah. What made this exceptionally freaky for the time was that these attacks were happening in the victims' homes, which for that time period and still kind of today are considered to be safe places, you know? Nice. Um, the Axman's brutal methods and the fact that he seemed to also target Italian American grocers and their families. So fucking random, many of whom were new immigrants to America. It added the fear and mistrust that existed in the city's Italian American community. Oh, it's important to note that um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a huge movement of Italians and Sicilians into the New Orleans area, which is interesting because you immediately go to think, excuse me, at least I do, um, that Italian immigrants migrated to the Northeast of America. But no, there was actually a large amount that went to New Orleans. Hmm. Um, an area in the French Quarter eventually became unofficially known as Little Palomero after the Sicilian capital because so many families opened up shops to sell their food and wares in that area of the French Quarter. Now, it may shock you to hear that America is not innocent when it comes to discrimination and many cultures have obviously felt the sting of that and some right. still to this day. Um, but these Italians were facing serious hate 
even before the murders began. They were being refused work, children were being bullied in school, slur words and death threats and mass public lynchings were happening. To uh, there is a dark history with Italians and Sicilians in the late 1800s and early 1900s in New Orleans. These murders only sparked that fear and added to the discrimination from the locals in New Orleans. And almost they almost blamed the Italians for what was happening, which is so mm -hmm. fun. But um, back to the murderer. This freak had two distinctive signatures. The first one was letters. Days leading up to the murders, the axemen would often send letters to newspapers taunting the police and promising to strike again. The letters were filled with references to jazz music and the axemen's love for it. In one letter, he even went as far to say that he would spare anyone who was listening to jazz music at a certain time and place. Mm. I am, and this is a quote, I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. What? Yeah. This led to a citywide jazz night where residents played music and left their lights on in hopes of deterring the axemen from attacking. Sure. Yeah. His obsession with jazz music led the police to assume that he was a musician himself or had a connection to the music industry in some way. The letters were also seen as a way for the axemen to mock the police and the community and to assert his power and control over them. The letters mm. a mix of broken English and Italian, leading some to believe that the killer was of Italian descent. The letters were often filled with threats and taunts directed at the police and, again, the entire community itself. That's so crazy. Yeah. Another letter wrote, I am not a human. I am a spirit. I can come in the fog. I can come in the rain. I can come in the night when you're asleep and watch you as you dream. Ew. Yeah. The second signature at most of the crime scenes was the axe that he left, which was used as his weapon of choice. Despite the extensive investigations and crushing pressure from the public to solve and catch this fool, the police were never able to identify the axeman or arrest any suspects. The police conducted door-to-door -door interviews, searched for suspects, and checked alibis of potential suspects and followed up on leads and tips from the public. They also increased patrol in the areas where the murders occurred and advised residents to take precautions such as installing locks, which, like, <laughs> what? Um, and leaving their lights on. <laughs> oh, because they didn't have them? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I forget what the heck I was watching the other day, but I was watching a show that was like, I'm going to have to try to remember what the fuck I was watching. But I was watching a movie. Oh, my God. Duh. I was watching a show. I was watching Gilmore Girls the other day. Okay, it's September now, guys. It's I'm I'm in full swing. Okay, it's Gilmore Girl time. Anyways, so she, uh, the grandmother Emily Gilmore, was shutting her front door, and I literally like zoomed in, and there was no lock on it. Now, obviously, this is a set. It's a fucking show, whatever. 
but they live in this like huge extravagant mansion home and it was like oh you know like a lot of houses didn't have locks at the time but anyways i digress lock your fucking door anyways right eventually the police also set up a special task force specifically to investigate the axman murders the task force was led by new orleans police chief dave hennessy who had a reputation for being tough on crime. Um, The task force worked closely with the recently established FBI, but despite their best efforts, there was just not enough physical evidence left because DNA research was not what it is today. And he was careful to leave no fingerprints or DNA at the crime scene. Hmm. Weapon he used was often left behind, making it difficult to trace. So they were unable to make any arrests or identify any suspects to this day. And he just stopped? Yep. What the yeah. fuck? What I think happened, um, or is like a possibility of what happened, was, um, you know, maybe he got drafted. Maybe he died. Usually that happens... Um, like this was 1918 so you're kind of in between wars but it's possible that he he was still drafted into world war one um but yeah it's it's odd and like why attack italian grocers specifically now not all of his victims were but a large amount of them and already new orleans has such a funky history with um with just crazy shit happening and crazy murders. I mean, right now there, uh, I even spoke, uh, this was a while ago, a few months ago. Um, I met someone at work and he's from new Orleans and I like, because I am just me, I was like, Oh, like where all the vampires are. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, tell me about it. Like, what did you experience? Like, is it really what everyone says? Like all the vampires are in new Orleans. And he was like, yeah, um during like the witching hour you do not go on certain streets because they're literally like dressed like old school vampires they have their teeth shaved down they attack people they have their own nightclubs where they like go and act like vampires and he's like it is very much like what you think it is and i find that thing because there's been so many um like slasher type murders that have happened in New Orleans for a very long time and that are unsolved. Yeah. I don't know. So I don't necessarily have an idea of a good suspect for this. Um, I do think it's possible that it was someone of Italian descent, but I think it's just too coincidental um, for them to have added the broken Italian into it too. I think that was more of like, more of an additional, uh, like, fuck you from the murderer to the Italian community. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, I had had heard about the axe murder of New Orleans, um, Nolens, from American Horror Story Coven, because he's in that one. And I love the actor who plays him. He's so spooky. But I was like, oh my gosh. Because he did the same thing in the show where he was like, 
I will not kill people in the home that plays jazz music. Like, he was big about that, but I don't know. That's just trippy that it's real, mm-hmm. you know? It is, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's unsolved. Never going to figure it out. Never going to know. And the fact that he fucking left the, like, just to just pour salt in the wound. He's going to leave the murder weapon there. It's just icky. Just icky. And, like, we, this is kind of, I mean, we always talk about spooky stuff. We always talk about something twisted, whether it's something spiritual, whether it's a true crime thing, whether it's murders involved, hauntings involved, whatever it is. But, like, true crime and unsolved, it just hits different. It's yeah. such a different vibe than what um, what we're used to. And if you guys like or dislike this little vibe, let us know. Because, um, like I said, like, this is a little, it's kind of the same, but it's a little different. We're not talking about how some of these uh, locations might be haunted. Although you did touch on that a little bit. It's a little different than what we're used to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was really, it was really exciting to research. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh. And just knowing, I mean, both of, even, I didn't say this before, Lizzie Borden's house is open to the public. It's like a and b Yeah. Where you can, like, go and stay the night. Um, Like, you can go and stay the night there plus they do like ghost tours and things like that it's a museum type sitch um but it apparently is also very haunted uh i also didn't mention this a theory of why she was not covered in blood was that she killed them in the nude oh yeah uh, yeah yeah but that but also debunks her weird friend Alice's accusation. Right. And did Bridget not see her running around naked as a jaybird? Who knows? Who knows what kind of... There There was someone that was sending hush money, agreeing on something. I, I want to know how long Bridget lived after... Well, and this was weird. I actually just remember this i'm sorry um one of the podcasts i listened to they had said um on her deathbed that she had like deathbed confession that she was covering up for lizzie during her trial and like didn't tell all the information and i was like how is that even she still testified against her yeah she's just trying to get any last pity or who knows what the fuck I'm well, I'm like, did did she really, or did you just say that? Like, I don't. <laughs> I need to see like the cold hard facts to believe it. I guess I don't know, but um, yeah, these cases were horrifying and just <sighs> deplorable. But I think that they're important to tell, especially all of these um, people who. And children who lost their lives. I don't care if you're Andrew Borden and you don't want to fucking have electricity in your house or you're cutting off people's feet to fit into a coffin. You still don't deserve to be bludgeoned to death. You know, hatchet, 
hatcheted to death. Nope, I don't, I don't know. It's just really heartbreaking. And I feel like that their stories are important to tell and it's also important to um, send, you know, well wishes or prayers to these victims and just hope that they are all resting peacefully, you know? Yeah. Oh. It's a lot. It's a heavy topic. And it definitely yeah. leave Ugh. like an icky feeling for a little bit. But we can just hope that all of these victims and all of these souls are at peace and that they're not yes. holding anything. And they're far, far, far away from the horrible, horrible people that did this to them that they never got justice for. So that's something we can hope. Um, yeah. But again, yeah, if this is something like, this is a topic that you guys are like, we want to hear more about your guys's true crime stuff. Definitely let us know. Cause we had fun researching. I mean, not fun. This definitely was not a fun topic. Oh my gosh. Especially like the German family, the Grubers. I was so and it had so many different twists and just no more information. Yeah. Oh, so frustrating. All of these like accusations, like with the stupid, the, the, the stupid dad, but like all these accusations and nothing to back it up. It's just really frustrating. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's important to talk about it. Ugh, yeah. it it's very, very interesting history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, we would love to hear what you guys think what you guys thought about this episode um feel free to reach out to us on our social media like or comment below if you're on youtube yes so if you guys are watching us on youtube hello hi how are you like brit and hi. I comment like subscribe if you're not on youtube our youtube is the twisted twins podcast if you guys want more of the Twisted Twins. Go ahead and check us out on Instagram or TikTok at the Twisted Twins Podcast. Let us know what you guys think about this stuff. If you guys have anything you want to add, if you have theories about any of the murderers and these stories, freaking let us know for sure. If you have yes. any creepy stories that you want to share with us that you want us to talk about, send us an email to the Twisted Twins Podcast at gmail.com and we will absolutely talk about that. We love doing this, guys, and we want to hear what you have to say. So definitely let us know. Yes, let us know. And have a wonderful start to your week. We hope you enjoy your first week of September. We're in the, I've been seeing that thing going around social media. We're in the burr months. Yes. I'm like, oh, <laughs> the basic bitch in me is happy. <laughs> Time. Yeah. Yeah. We hope you guys take care and stay twisted. See you Bye. later.